the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Sam Maupin Engineering. Today, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Dr. Craig Evans. He's the editor of a handbook on the Jewish roots of the Gospels. That's coming up later this first hour of today's program. We'll also continue our election coverage and headlines. And a reminder that tomorrow being Veterans Day, we have a special Veterans Day special for you. There's also a parade taking place in Portland, of all places. You can find out more about that at kpdq.com. Well, Republicans eliminated Democrats' three-fifths majority in the Oregon Senate by flipping at least one net seat in Tuesday's election, meaning that Democrats will no longer be able to strong-arm votes on new taxes through an on straight party line votes. There's no super majority. Well, the precise divide between the parties remains uncertain as Clackamas County Senate District 20, a contest between Democrat Mark Meek and incumbent Republican Bill Kenimer, remains too close to call. But it's clear that Republicans who now hold 11 seats in the chamber will um, up their numbers to at least 12 come January. With a 13th seat held by independent Brian Boquist of Dallas, Democrats are shut out from holding the 18th seat necessary for a three-fifths supermajority. It seems healthy to me for the state. Republicans picked up a seat on Oregon's North Coast where Representative Suzanne Weber uh, from Tillamook won the contest Tuesday to replace Democratic Senator Betsy Johnson, who stepped down to run for governor. Another Republican House member also looking to move up to the Senate, Cedric Hayden of rural Lane County, handily beat his opponent in the race to replace retiring Democratic uh, Senator Lee Bayer of Springfield in a newly redrawn Senate District 6. Now, whether Republicans pick up a second uh, seat depends on the outcome of a close race in Clackamas County. That race, the most expensive state Senate race ever waged in Oregon, currently stands at 50.3% to 49.6% with many ballots yet to be tallied. Now, I haven't checked before the program started to see if that's been resolved, but again, pending last I checked. In Senate District 16, the contest to replace Johnson, Weber beat uh, Democratic newcomer Melissa Bush, a home health nurse uh, from Warren. The Northwest Oregon District includes Astoria, Tillamook, and St. Helens. Democrats have a narrow three percentage point registration advantage, but unaffiliated voters make up 35% of the district voters, and voting patterns have been trending redder in recent Years And again, we're talking about uh, the Oregon legislature. The House district that Weber won in 2020 overlaps with much of Senate District 16 and the redrawn district now takes in uh, more of coastal Oregon and less Portland, uh, Portland's western suburbs. Uh, Weber raised uh, quite a bit of money for that contest as well, about twice as much as the opponent. In District 3, one-term Democratic incumbent Senate, uh, Senator Jeff Golden of Ashland beat challenger Randy Sparacino, or something very like that, the Republican mayor of Medford. As of uh, this morning, um, uh, Golden had 52% of the vote versus 48% 
of his opponent. Democrats hold a seven percentage point voter registration advantage in this district. It is Ashland, after all, which includes the Interstate 5 corridor from Medford to Ashland and a broad swath of more rural southern Oregon. But uh, the uh, money spent in the race was pretty uh, steep for uh, Mr. Sparatino. District 20, Democrats were trying to flip Senate District 20 in Clackamas County after a dramatic redraw gave them a 10 percentage point registration advantage in a district that was previously about evenly split. This was also the Senate's biggest money race with a Democratic challenger, Representative Mark Meek of Gladstone, bringing in $2.12 million in contributions versus Republican incumbent Bill Kinnamer of Oregon City's $2.04 million. Kinnamer is a longtime fixture in Clackamas County politics. He served about two decades in the legislature. It dates back to 1980s and also served three terms on the Clackamas County Commission. Meek had a slight lead in preliminary results tallied as of noon yesterday with 50.3 percent of the vote versus 49.6 percent for Kinnamer. But again, uh, I haven't checked before the show started today to see if that has been settled. In District 10, the uh, Senate District uh, 10, a newly redrawn district that covers the western half of Salem, Independence, and much of uh, Monmouth, Democratic one-term incumbent Dead Patterson of Salem beat Republican challenger um, Raquel Moore-Green, who served in the House since 2019. As of uh, midday yesterday, Patterson had 54% of the vote, Green 46%. Uh, Moore Green was Republicans' top money recipient with $2.2 million in campaign donations compared to Patterson's $1.8 million haul, both of which smashed previous records. Voter registration currently stands at 33% Democrat, 25% Republican. In District 11, in the uh, race to replace retiring Senate President Peter Courtney in a dramatically redrawn Senate District 11, Republican Senator Kim Thatcher of Kaiser beat Democratic challenger Rich Walsh. Democrats have six uh, percentage point registration advantage in this district, which now includes Salem, Kaiser and most of Woodburn. Both of the one point two eight million dollars in contributions that Thatcher brought in uh, was 65 percent higher than Walsh's seven hundred and eighty five thousand. Thatcher's been a member of the legislative um, representing uh, the Salem-Kaiser area since 2004 and was twice elected to the Senate after five terms in the House. Walsh is a former member of the Kaiser City Council, faced challenges as well. He was appointed as Democrats' nominee for the seat after the winner of the Democratic primary, Eric Swenson, dropped out, saying he wanted to remain mayor of Woodburn. In District 13, Democrat Aaron Woods of Wilsonville, planned uh, planning commissioner, beat Republican opponent, John Velez in the Senate District 13 race, the contest to replace Thatcher after she was drawn out of her district. As of uh, yesterday, Woods had 58 percent of the vote, his opponent 42 percent. And then District 15, the recently appointed incumbent Senator Janine Salmon of uh, Hillsborough, the Democrat, beat Republican challenger Caroline Malmetal, who uh, owns a plumbing and portable a restroom business in Hillsboro with her husband. The Senate district covers Hillsboro, Cornelius, Forest Grove, and parts of unincorporated Washington County, north of uh, Highway 26. The district leans strongly Democratic, 33% versus 20% Republican. But um, uh, Mail Metal uh, raised $1.09 million compared to $227,000 raised by the opponent. Um, so money talked in that one, as did the uh, voters who voted in that way. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue to uh, look at uh, some of the 
election results. And we'll look forward to a conversation with Dr. Craig Evans, editor of a handbook on the Jewish roots of the Gospels. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the program, Craig Evans. Dr. Evans is the editor of a handbook on the Jewish roots of the gospel. Well, Veterans Day is Friday, and KPDQ and our sister station, AM860, The Answer, invite you to take part in a very special event, Operation Helping Our Heroes. We'll raise money to help those who give us so much, our local veterans and their families. Learn how the Clark County Veterans Assistance Center helps these brave men and women in the Portland-Vancouver area. Plus, uh, we'll take part in the Veterans Day Parade back this year with a new route. Uh, to honor our vets and to showcase this uh, fundraiser. The parade will march north on northeast um, MLK, starting at Beach and ending on Sumner, which is uh, one street past Alberta, the west side. All that detail can be found on the website. But you can uh, get to the website for details and how you can help our heroes and find more info about the Veterans Day Parade this Friday. KPDQ.com. Well, Oregon voters approved a ballot question that is considered one of the most restrictive gun control measures in the country. Known as Measure 114, the ballot question was approved 51 percent to 49 percent, with 77 percent of the vote counted. The Oregonian reported early Wednesday, although the uh, results were close with just over three-fourths of the vote tallied, the remaining uh, counties, Multnomah, Washington, and Clackamas, are heavily in favor of the measure. Well, Measure 114, often referred to as the Reduction of Gun Violence Act, would that that were true, will require background checks, firearms training, fingerprint collection, and a permit to purchase any firearm. Alongside the uh, measure's uh, heightened restrictions, the National Rifle Association said it believes the ambiguous language Language fails to safeguard gun owner information by creating a searchable database of gun owners. The ballot measure gives the power to each permit issuing department to annually publish any additional information that it determines would be helpful to be to the process. That information includes names, addresses and a whole host of additional personal information that would be released to the public. Spokesperson Lars Daleside Uh, previously uh, speaking on the subject, um, pointed out this ballot measure fails to safeguard law abiding gun owners, personal information and by proxy information of families, friends and employers from being made public. Failing to include those safeguards puts lives and property at risk. He points out currently California maintains a database for owners of concealed carry permits. But Oregon's Reduction of Gun Violence Act will place every gun owner in a database. The contents of California's database was leaked in June and gun rights advocates have argued that centralized gun databases lead to an abuse of power. Uh, This measure will not make our communities safer. It will put our communities at greater risk for violence because it requires that every sheriff's office and police agency diverse scarce public safety resources to background systems that already exist. That's a quote from Deschutes County Sheriff Shane Nelson. Well, Oregon already requires background checks for gun ownership. Uh, But the measure approved by voters will add a gun safety course uh, regulated by police and restrict magazine capacity to 10 rounds. In total, the new measure will cost the state approximately $49 million annually uh, to maintain. Well, there was no red wave. There was no red tide. There was no red trickle. There was just a fizzle. Ben Shapiro points out that the 2022 midterm election fundamentals 
would have suggested a ringing Republican victory and unpopular president of the opposing opposing party, deep public unhappiness with the state of the economy, unified Democratic control of Congress, the radical social policy out of step with most Americans. Polls showed Republicans cutting deeply into Democratic constituencies, including Hispanic and black voting blocs. Yet, as of Wednesday morning and today, Republicans who were widely expected by both sides of the political aisle to win historic margins in the House of Representatives and to take back the the U.S. Senate are coming up short nearly everywhere. They will likely take back the House, but by a very slim margin after an extraordinarily tepid showing that may land them with a majority of just um, just north of 220 seats. They're unlikely to take back the Senate, given that the deciding vote will likely come via a runoff in a Georgia Senate race featuring the highly vulnerable and troubled candidate Herschel Walker. So what happened? What happened is that uh, in many districts, the states all over the country, Republicans picked bad candidates, believing that the fundamentals were all that was necessary to sweep them to victory. Republican leadership failed to intervene in these primaries to the extent necessary to ensure durable general election candidates. Now, again, part of the strategy for the Democrats was to um, in the uh, primary elections to vote for Republicans. They thought the weaker candidate and it worked. Um They stood aside, uh, referring to uh, Republican leadership, largely out of fear of the former president, Donald Trump. Trump himself personally intervening in a variety of cases in the primaries, endorsing candidates almost solely on the basis of whether they were sufficiently uh, syncophatic regarding the election of 22 or rather 2020. Those candidates then lost. And then President Trump uh, ripped them. Take, for example, Don Bolduck of New Hampshire. New Hampshire is a toss-up state. Late polls suggested that he, despite his myriad oddities and strong support for President Trump in the 2020 election, fraud claims might win the race. Instead, he lost by double digits, and Trump promptly took the, to Truth Social to let the world know um, that he deserved to lose. Well, it goes on from there. Um, one would assume that the political party that fell short of expectations, their own and that of others, even Democrats who believed there would be a rather significant red wave, are probably rethinking strategy for 2024. Well, far left uh, district attorney candidates who appeared on November ballots and received backing from billionaire George Soros have swept their elections, according to a nationwide search of records and election results. Fox News Digital performed a 50-state search of campaign finance databases and identified at least four prosecutor candidates who received financial backing from Soros and won their November elections, including two newcomers and two candidates he previously had backed. Soros' district attorney operation involves his longtime treasurer, Whitney Tamas, establishing pop-up political action committees in states where he targets the prosecutor races. Um, once set up the financier, he injects money into the PACs, which tend to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars backing his preferred candidates. The PACs typically dissolve after the election has completed. In some past cases, uh, this, the head of the uh, political action committee established committees on the city level, such as a Philadelphia for district attorney Larry Krasner, um, the sweep solely covered state databases, which means there could be more um, 
more candidates, but the sorrow-backed candidates who made it to the November election include Kimberly Graham of Iowa. This past summer, Graham received more than $300,000 of backing from the uh, Soros organization in her Polk County attorney Democratic primary election. The progressive candidate faced Republican defense attorney Alan Richards in the November general election, but easily defeated him by nearly 14 percentage points. Soros steered $300,000 to the Maine Justice and Public Safety Pack in May. That money backed Jackie uh, Sartoris, who defeated Cumberland County Democratic District Attorney Jonathan uh, Sabek on a um, June primary. No Republican or independent candidate filed to run against that candidate, which made her the uh, shoo-in for the general election. In Texas, Soros spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in a last-minute cash backing uh, Bexar County D.A. Joe Gonzalez and Dallas County D.A. John Cruzat, both of whom Soros previously helped uh, propel into office. Uh, Gonzalez fended off Republican challenger Mark LaHood, and Cruzat uh, defeated Republican challenger Faith Johnson by 20 percentage points. The latest round of district attorney cash comes on the heels of efforts that have been underway for years. Soros views district attorneys as a significant component of overhauling the criminal justice system and has financially backed dozens of far left prosecutor candidates, including Krasner of Philadelphia, Kim Fox of Chicago, Kim Gardner of St. Louis and George Gascon in Los Angeles. Soros has also bankrolled numerous initiatives intending to overhaul the criminal justice system. In 2020, his Open Society Foundations Network pledged $70 million to local efforts for such reforms, which was part of a more significant $220 million push for racial equality. Now, additionally, he has funneled cash into an effort that calls for abolishing the police. In 2019 and 2020, his foundation to promote open society, a nonprofit, uh, in his sprawling network, airmarked $4.5 million to the Community Resource Hub for Safety and Responsibility, um, the Soros cash helped create the group, which has reviewed alternatives to policing in the context of police abolishment frameworks. The group's memo uh, to the organization said so Soros had his hand very firmly uh, planted in this midterm election. We're going to take a break. But when we return, a conversation with Craig Evans. Dr. Evans is the editor of a handbook on Jewish roots, the Jewish roots of the Gospels. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm looking forward to a conversation on a new volume, A Handbook on the Jewish Roots of the Gospels, edited by my next guest, Craig Evans and David Mishkin. In fact, Mr. Mishkin, in the introduction to the book, asked the question, is it even possible to say anything new about Jesus of Nazareth? New Testament scholarship has been greatly enhanced by the recognition of the Jewish Jesus. This was the focus of the first volume, a handbook on the Jewish roots of the Christian faith. Well, this new book, which is a sequel of sorts, will focus on the four canonical Gospels as not only vehicles to tell a Jewish story, um, but also a document uh, which themselves need to be understood as Jewish. In this sense, there certainly is something more to learn about Jesus. And of course, that will always be the case. Well, Dr. Craig Evans is a John 
I'm, no, I'm certain I'm going to get this wrong. Bia Sago, Sagno, Distinguished Professor of Christian Origins at Houston Baptist University in Texas. He is the author and editor of over 90 books and has appeared in more than 100 television documentaries and news programs on the subject of faith. And we are delighted to have him with us today to talk about this new resource, a handbook on the Jewish roots of the Gospels. Welcome. It's good to have you back. Thank you, Georgine. Good to be back with you. This is a, such an interesting volume, and as I mentioned, this really uh, follows uh, a volume that is similar in nature, but focuses uh, the focus is somewhat different. Can you explain what this series, if you will, these handbooks on the Jewish roots of the Gospels or of Jesus, um, how that is intended to be used to enhance our understanding of and appreciation of who Jesus is? Oh, happy to. You know, the Christian Church is overwhelmingly Gentile or non-Jewish, although there are probably several hundred thousand Jewish Christians today in the world, um, you know, you're talking about two billion Christians, and a vast majority don't know much about Judaism. And, of course, the Jesus movement was very much a, a Jewish movement, and so the Gospels were that way, too. And so for people to read the New Testament, and the first handbook had to do with just the whole idea of the Christian Church, the New Testament, everything, from a Jewish point of view— uh, it was so well received, and there was so much interest. We decided to issue a new handbook that was focused just on the Gospels. Of course, the Gospels tell the story mm-hmm. of Jesus, and so um, every you know the things we're talking about, anybody would have known in the first century. If you had been wandering around in Galilee listening to Jesus talk, <clears throat> you could be a professor today because you would know all this stuff. But we don't know it now because time has gone by, the Jewish element has receded to the back, uh, things are forgotten, things are not understood. People don't know Hebrew, they don't read the Old Testament in the Hebrew and Aramaic languages. Well, Jesus and his whole following were oriented toward all, <clears throat> were oriented toward all that. And so we're trying to recapture that. And so we're talking about uh, the Gospels very much from a Jewish point of view. We're looking at specific issues, touching on culture, religious ideas, how the Old Testament was interpreted, and so forth, so that today's reader, who doesn't know much about that, can learn a lot. And I'm really pleased. This book has been out for several months. It's catching on. People like it. The reviews are very positive. So I'm really glad we did it. Well, I'm really glad you did it as well. Let me ask, because I'm sure some of our listeners are thinking, well, this is probably over my head. To whom is this this volume written? Well, it's not written for scholars. Those scholars are looking at it. It's written for everybody. It's written for anybody who has the least interest in the Bible, the least interest uh, in Jesus and the Gospels, and they want to understand Jesus' teaching better. They want to understand the Gospels better, but they, you know, they can't read Greek or they can't read Hebrew. Uh, they don't know all this stuff. We're writing for them. That's the whole point of it. It's a handbook, not for experts, but for lay people, for people in the pew, people in the streets, anybody who wants to know more about Jesus in his Jewish world in that first century 
in that first original generation that knew these things, Mm -hmm. but we today don't know them. And so that's what we're doing. Now, is this latest volume, I wouldn't call it a sequel, although they are in some way connected. Is it necessary to read the first volume in order to benefit from this second, the Jewish roots of the gospel? No, it's not. I mean, it would help, but you don't have to. You can pick up this one and jump right in. In fact, you can turn to almost any place. It's not like reading a novel where you have to start at the beginning. Uh, You can turn to any chapter that strikes you of interest. You can read the chapters on the Gospel of John at first if you want, or you can read the chapters that are devoted to Matthew first if you want. There are, are different topics that are addressed, and so it is, as it says, a handbook. It's basically topical. And uh, so you can jump in and, and read whatever part that strikes your fancy, any area that happens to uh, have you have questions in. And that is so useful when you're studying the scriptures. Let me ask you what seems like an obvious question. Were the Gospels written for Christians, in quotes, or for Jews? Or is that a, a question that is yes regarding both, given yeah, the early really church? Yes, for both. Uh, because what what's going on, you know, the church is not, you know, it, Jesus, the resurrection has occurred, the church has launched, his followers have gone from being discouraged, thinking that their master had died, the movement had failed, he's raised up, they're reignited, the risen Jesus says, you've got work to do, get out there and preach, and the church takes off like like wildfire. It's a nonviolent movement. In 300 years, it has swept the Roman Empire. Not a shot has been fired. And so this is what it was all about. And so to understand that well, it's really important uh, to, you know, when Jesus says things, when he's interpreting Scripture, when he talks about prophecy being fulfilled or what the law is or how you live— if you don't know anything about the Jewish world that he presupposed in which he lived and taught, you're lost. You're going to miss a whole lot. And that's that's the purpose of the handbook is to help people see that clearly. Mm-hmm. I introduced you as the editor of this volume, you uh, along with the, your co-editor. Uh, tell us a little bit about the contributors, both Christian and uh, Messianic Jewish believers. Well, that's exactly what they are. Uh, all of the contributors are believers uh, and are Christians. Uh, of course, um, some uh, Messianic believers who are Jewish, they, they, they avoid being called Christian because they think it's kind of a Gentile term that might be misunderstood. And so they call themselves Messianic Jews, and that's fine. That's really what they are. They're ethnic Jewish, and uh, but they believe in Jesus. They'll, they'll say Yeshua, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus mm-hmm. is the Messiah. And, uh, and so this brings a sensitivity and an awareness that many non-Jewish interpreters lack. And so all of us, all of the contributors, we've been to Israel many times. Some of our contributors are Israeli citizens and live in Israel. And so we, we know the land. We've seen it. We've traveled and walked about We've visited the archaeological sites. We've been to the museums. We've seen the Dead Sea Scrolls and other ancient writings. And so that we have a feeling for that. And so it's a hand-picked crew uh, that have been writing. So there was a, a very much a, a, an intentionality involved in picking people, inviting people to contribute who really do know the Jewish people well, Jewish customs, 
and and the ancient uh, Hebrew scriptures and so on. They really know that well, and those are the kind of people we wanted uh, to write the articles that make up this handbook, and we're very pleased with the group of people that we were able to recruit. Almost no one said no, and we got the people we wanted, and we're very pleased with what's been produced. Again, we're talking this afternoon about the Jewish roots of the gospel. It is a handbook uh, by that uh, same title, edited by our guest, Dr. Craig Evans. We need to take a quick break, but we'll explore the contents of this very useful volume as it looks at the four Gospels when we return in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about a handbook on the Jewish roots of the gospel, edited by my guest, Dr. Craig Evans, along with David Mishkin. It is a unique volume to help us better understand the Jewishness of Jesus and uh, the gospels that we have uh, come to love and and enjoy. Now, you write that the, or, or one of your uh, writers uh, suggests that the uh, the gospels are unique as they are complex, as complex as Jesus. What do you mean by that? Are they unique in that in the tradition of the time they stand out uh, in terms of their placement following the, the Old Testament? How are they unique and as complex as Jesus himself? Well, it's an interesting analogy. Uh, what You know, the Gospels have been studied for almost 2,000 years now, and scholars are still debating precisely how they should be understood. Are they biography? Are they history exactly? What is the model that they can be compared to? They're somewhat like Old Testament stories. I think of Elijah and Elisha in the books of Kings, uh, a little bit like that. Are they really like the Greco-Roman biographies written about, say, uh, the emperors? Uh, you know, and so that's what makes them so unique. There's nothing quite like them. You don't have it in rabbinic literature exactly, the Talmud or the Midrash, the other writings that are Jewish. And so the Gospels are unique, and they're perplexing. And this is all the more reason for this handbook to help people understand that. And so Jesus, of course, is complex. I mean, here we are 2,000 mm-hmm. years later, and you have the best minds in the world studying him, talking about him, and you can't quite find the right box to put him into. So, you know, what kind of Messiah is he when he speaks of being the Son of God? Exactly what does he mean? And I find that intriguing. It's deep, it's rich, it's complex, but study pays off. And as you dig into the sources, we learn a whole lot more. And the handbook orients the readers. You know, the handbook doesn't explain everything. What it does is it introduces people to the important topics and shows them how they can be pursued further. Yeah, it gives us a context that we don't have in the 21st century living in America uh, outside of the culture uh, even in our uh, lifetime, uh, being so different. Um, the book suggests that the book of Matthew enjoyed a pride of place. We don't think about how it's placed before the other three Gospels um, in the what was the emerging fourfold Gospel collection uh, that emerged over time. Talk a bit about um, Matthew and and the importance of pride of place in terms of where it fits into the canon. Oh, yes, that's a, that's a good topic because the early church rightly recognized, once there were four Gospels circulating, that Matthew really formed a neat bridge between the Old Testament 
And the New Testament that was coming together with the Gospels, the Book of Acts, several letters by Paul and others, they recognized that, you know what, Matthew begins quoting the Old Testament, talking about Jesus' genealogy in a way that takes you right back to the genealogies in the Old Testament. It's one text after another is cited as fulfilled. One uh, law of Moses after another is discussed as to what it really means. And so Matthew became a bridge that connects the two Testaments. And the church, I think, was wise in deciding that Matthew's gospel should be the very first book of the four gospels, the very first book of the New Testament. That made good sense a long time ago. It still makes good sense today. And there's much more that can be said about Matthew. Jesus is presented like the new Moses, the new lawgiver, the ultimate interpreter of the law, the ultimate fulfiller of prophecy. All of this is very important. The Gospel of John stands apart from the other three Gospels. Can you talk a a bit about that in the ongoing study of this unique Gospel? Oh, John is fascinating. Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, parallel each other very closely. They share a whole lot of material, almost two-thirds is common in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that's why they're called synoptic. You can see them together side by side in columns, but not with John. John does overlap here and there, of course, but John is filled with unique material, and Jesus' teaching style is different. And so there, a lot of people say, well, it's, it's wisdom. It's Jewish wisdom themes coming into play. And I think there's truth to that. It's, uh, the, the Jewish people, the Jewish interpreters in Jesus' time were fascinated with wisdom, the whole idea that God's wisdom ex- resided in heaven with God, that God's word was in heaven with God. Well, John says that's right. That word and that wisdom became a human, became incarnate, became in flesh. And that's a good way of discussing who Jesus is. And so John runs with that. And, uh, of course, he has that famous first verse. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And that's one of the most famous verses in the world. And so it marks, it makes John stand alone in a, in a lot of interesting ways. And so there's a whole, it's a subdiscipline, a whole body of literature mm-hmm. and scholarship today focused on the Gospel of John. How would his Gospel be in, have been interpreted um, in his time by Jewish um, believers and those who are yet to believe? Would they have understood and recognized the Jesus he describes and the signs that he focuses on in the first 11 chapters of the, the Gospel of John? Oh, I think most uh, anybody with a Jewish background would realize that Jesus is doing what Moses talked about. Moses, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses provided us with five books, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Near the end of Deuteronomy, he warns the people who have been rebellious, who built the golden calf, who, you know, and that generation that's passing away in the wilderness He's warning their successors, the next generation, you better be careful. You, you don't want to be blind. You don't want to have eyes that don't see, ears that don't hear, a mind that can't think. That could happen because despite the signs that have been done in the wilderness that should have led you to have faith in, in God, to trust God, you haven't. You've done foolish things, idolatrous things. Well, John picks up on that. 
And so that's the way Jesus talks in the Gospel of John. He performs signs. Uh, his miracles are not called signs in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but that's what they're called. He performs seven astounding signs, uh, miracles, giving the bread in the wilderness, for example, uh, in in the Gospel of John. And so he's coming across very much as a fulfiller of what Moses talked about. He's the new Moses. Moses lifted up the, the brass serpent in the wilderness that if people look on it, they're, they're saved from the snake bites. Jesus says he will be like that. He will be lifted up. And when people look on him in faith, they receive eternal life. So you get this interesting comparison and contrast between Jesus and Moses. And John, John's gospel really runs with it. And so in a sense, John's gospel is the most Jewish gospel of all four. Mm, yes. Um, the Jews doubted of, the, of that day, doubted the Messiah would be crucified uh, with such dishonor. Um, how can we better understand how that sign was misinterpreted or wasn't recognized at all? Well, uh, you, you know, and, and the early Christians, Jesus himself, they all knew that. And so that's why Jesus compares himself to the suffering servant. He's described in Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. And John's gospel, which we've been talking about, actually quotes verses from the suffering servant song and talks about how it's necessary for Jesus to be lifted up. And it's a real interesting wordplay. Lift up can mean exalted raised up, you know, so people praise you, but it can also mean literally raised up on a cross. And so Jesus and John is teaching that by being lifted up on a cross, which is horrible and shameful and looks a lot like defeat, it actually is his success. He accomplishes his will. He he is raised up, returns to heaven, and becomes savior of the world. And so there's this great paradox in the fourth gospel, that's what the uh, the writer of the fourth gospel is running with. He wants people to see that in being crucified, Jesus wasn't defeated. He, in fact, had victory, and he's, in fact, defeated the world. And so the, that's, that's John for you. And John is very exalted, high Christology compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The book we're talking about is a handbook on the Jewish roots of the gospel. My guest, uh, Dr. Craig Evans, is one of the editors of this book. In the last section of the book, you write about intercultural roots and how the gospel of Luke, for example, and Jewish uh, Christian relations um, are addressed. Can you talk a little bit about the intercultural roots of the faith and how we as um, Christians in the 21st century can relate to our uh, to Jewish believers today and in our efforts to share the gospel with those uh, who don't yet recognize the Messiah? Well, that's a big topic. I, I can speak to a couple of things that are very important. One of them, you know, there are so many people, Jews and non-Jews today, who don't even realize the Jewish dimension of the early church, of Jesus himself. I was giving a lecture one time, and I kept talking about the early Christians, Jewish Christians, and what they believed and what they did. And uh, during question and answer, a young woman I later found out who was Jewish, she said, what are you talking about? Jews mm. and Christians are two completely different things. To talk about a Jewish Christian is a contradiction in terms. And I found that just amazing. She's a smart person going to a very good college. She wasn't dumb. She, she was smart. 
but she had this gross misunderstanding. And this is what we're trying to talk about at the end, but also throughout the whole handbook, how important it is to understand uh, the history of the Christian movement, to understand the cultural and ethnic identity of Jesus of Nazareth and his early disciples. Because if we can't figure that out, it's awfully hard to have conversations. Because if Christians don't understand the Jewish roots, they may not appreciate what the Jewish people bring to the table. If the Jewish people don't understand uh, who aren't Christians, if Jews who aren't Christians don't understand the Judaic nature of the early church, then they might not be interested. So we're hoping this handbook culturally uh, and socially will build a bridge so that uh, Jews and Christians can talk to each other with greater understanding, greater sympathy, and greater respect. Amen. Well, Dr. Evans, thank you so much for the book and for talking with us today. Oh, you're very welcome. Anytime, Georgine. Thank you. Again, Dr. Craig Evans, editor of A Handbook on the Jewish Roots of the Gospels, published by Hendrickson and available wherever you buy books. News and traffic up next. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. We're going to continue our election post-mortem on some issues and some other things as well. Also want to remind you that tomorrow being Veterans Day, we have a Veterans Day special we'd like to share with you along with this week's Christian Outlook. So be sure to join us. Portland Singing Christmas Tree. The spectacular celebration of its 60th season is this year. We'd like to encourage you to bring the family to see this wonderful holiday tradition. The tree will open on November 26th for only two weekends. Now, every year I'm, uh, I have a conversation with someone who says, Oh, I'm coming to the tree and it's already gone. So two weekends only beginning November 26th at Sunset Church in Northwest or rather on Northwest Cornell Road in Portland. No, uh, Paid parking downtown, no traffic. You get the idea. Featuring a number of great soloists, and I get to join them, so I'm so thrilled. Well, this concert brings the sights and sounds of Christmas while sharing the reason for the season. Details on how to buy your tickets at kpdq.com. And let me encourage you to do that sooner rather than later. It will come and go before you know it. Well, amid high inflation and rising costs, Americans could be in store for a slight tax relief next year. The Internal Revenue Service announced the inflation-adjusted tax brackets earlier this month, and the changes could mean that some pay a smaller tax bill when they file in 2023. Well, the IRS makes these adjustments every year, but because of high inflation, the adjustments are more significant this time. Here's how inflation will impact standard deductions in 2023. For married couples, the standard deduction will increase to $27,700, up from $1,800 In 2022, for single taxpayers and married individuals filing separately, the standard deduction will increase to thirteen thousand eight hundred and fifty. That's up from nine hundred dollars in twenty twenty two. And for heads of households and the standard deduction will be twenty thousand eight hundred dollars. And that's up from fourteen hundred dollars in twenty twenty two. Well, the federal income tax brackets are tied to federal income tax rates, which are adjusted for inflation on a yearly basis. That's what the head of the tax strategy at April Tax Solutions says. Next year, taxpayers may feel like they received a bit of tax break, even though their taxable income essentially stays the same. 
In 2023, even your paycheck should get a little fatter as withholding rates will be adjusted as well. Well, there's something to look forward to. If you're looking to reduce your expenses amid high inflation, you could consider using a personal loan to pay down debt as a lower interest rate, or you might just want to pay your taxes. Well, Americans could see up to $1,000 in tax savings, according to experts. The tax adjustment could provide some relief for workers uh, whose salaries have not kept up with inflation. There was a Bank of America survey conducted in July, and it said that 71 percent of American employees felt that the cost of living had outpaced growth in their salaries. That's up from 58 percent back in February. Taxpayers rather, should have a lower tax burden next year due to the 7 percent increases in the standard deduction and tax brackets. A finance expert uh, points out tax savings could range from $400 to over $1,000 for married couples filing jointly. Well, the IRS adjustment follows the Social Security Administration announcement that benefits will increase by 8.7% in 2023. This will impact about 70 million Americans by increasing benefit payments by an average of $140 per month beginning in January. Inflation has also impacted salary increases, according to a recent Salary.com survey. Roughly half, or 48% of employers, are replacing the uh, uh, predominant 3% rise uh, with a median raise of 4% across uh, all employee categories, the survey said. A quarter of employees said they plan to give increases in the range of 5 to 7% in 2023. Just a glimpse of what's happening in the days ahead if the Lord tarries. Well, the pro-life measure um, in Montana, well, let me back up and give you the the. Highlights. Montana voters rejected the Born Alive Infant Protection Act, and it is precisely what the title says. The Born Alive Infant Protection Act that would have required medical professionals to perform life-saving medical care on infants who survived abortions or were born prematurely, alive and intact. Well, a pro-life measure would not have uh, prevented Montana's residents from receiving abortions, but would have required medical care be provided to infants born alive. Now, think about that for a moment. This is what we have devolved to. Infants born alive will not be required to receive medical care in the state of Montana. As a result of a natural or induced labor, a failed abortion or a cesarean section, the measure failed by around 20,000 votes with 52.6% voting against it, 47.4% in favor of its passage uh, in the state of Montana. A health care provider performing an abortion shall take all medically appropriate and reasonable steps to preserve the life and health of a born alive infant who is viable. If an abortion performed in a hospital results in a live birth of a viable infant, the health care provider shall provide immediate medical care to that infant. The ballot measure stated. Now, what makes the difference? Here, it's whether or not that child is wanted by the birth mother. Well, the pro-life legislation acknowledged that an infant born alive after an attempted abortion is a legal person and would have granted them the rights to medical care after birth. If an abortion results in the live birth of an infant, the infant is a legal person for all purposes under the laws of this state. But not in Montana. The law also sought to penalize doctors if they fail to treat infants as living persons and take the required necessary action to preserve the life of a born alive infant. The bill recognized evidence of life as an infant who breathes, has a beating heart, and um, a definite movement of voluntary muscles. 
Well, without legal protection, newly born infants who have survived abortions have been denied appropriate life saving or life sustaining medical care or comfort care for that matter and treatment and have been left to die. I'm not sure how we can uh, rail against what happened in Nazi Germany if we allow these kinds of things here. God help us. Well, voters in five states cast ballots on measures to legalize recreational marijuana in Tuesday's midterm elections. Residents of Maryland and Missouri voted in favor of their measures, while voters in Arkansas, North Dakota and South Dakota rejected theirs. Well, going into Tuesday, recreational marijuana was already legal in 19 states and Washington, D.C. Eleven of those states, as well as the District of Columbia, voted to legalize marijuana through ballot initiatives. Seven states passed laws to legalize cannabis. In New Jersey, the state legislature put the measure on the ballot for voters to decide. We'll tell you a little bit more about those initiatives when we return and a few takeaways following Tuesday's midterm election. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. It's back. Ladies and gentlemen, it's back. I'm talking about the Christmas Mortgage Miracle, one of the biggest and most exciting promotions of the year. It's the KPDQ Christmas Mortgage Miracle, where you could have your mortgage or rent paid for an entire year. You can enter once per day now through the 21st of December and complete bonus entries as well, increasing the possibility that you could be the Mortgage Miracle winner. Well, the Christmas Mortgage Miracle brought to you by Pathways Clinic. Get all the important details and enter to win at kpdq.com. Wow, I would sure love that for a whole year. Hmm. Anyway, voters in five states cast ballots on measures to legalize recreational marijuana. We did that here in Oregon, I believe in Washington as well. Among the newcomers, Arkansas voted to, voters there rejected the state's issue for initiative, which would have legalized the possession of up to an ounce of marijuana uh, for those 21 or older, marijuana sales would have been uh, subject to a 10% tax. Arkansas uh, voters were not convinced, however, that 92% of the vote count, 56.3% rejected that measure. In Maryland, the General Assembly voted to put the issue on this year's ballot for voters to decide. The measure would add a marijuana legalization amendment to the state constitution. About 65.5% of Maryland voters approved that amendment. The measure legalizes marijuana for adults 21 and older and is set to take effect next July. In Missouri, residents approved the Amendment 3 ballot initiative to legalize marijuana, again, ages 21 and older, and place a 6% state tax um, uh, on pot with the uh, money raised going to programs for military veterans, according to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. So you sort of try to make it sound better, look better by, you know, attaching it to a good cause. So you get high and somebody benefits that you admire. The logic is a bit weak, but there you have it. North Dakota voters there rejected the ballot initiative statutory measure two, which would have legalized personal recreational cannabis. Again, 21 and older. The measure would have allowed eligible adults to possess up to an ounce uh, and grow up to three plants with 100 percent of the vote counted. Just 55 percent. Of North Dakotans had rejected the measure, according to the state election. And in South Dakota, residents there also rejected the initiative 
Measure 27, which would have um, legalized the possession and use and you get the rest. With 99 percent of the precincts counted, 53 percent of uh, South Dakotans rejected the measure, according to the Sioux Falls Argus leader newspaper. Well, what if, uh, if anything, did the midterms tell us about the country other than underwhelming Republicans uh, could still take the House and the Senate? We don't know yet because we don't know the outcome of some strategic races. And then there's Georgia uh, in the Senate race there that will have a runoff in December. Well, during the COVID-19 lockdowns, American uh, elections radically changed to mail in and early voting. They did so in a wild variety of state by state ways, add ranked uh, ranked voting and a required majority margin to the uh, mess. And the result is that once cherished Election Day balloting, Election Day, remember that there was an actual day becomes increasingly irrelevant. Well, election night also no longer exists. Returns are not counted for days. It is um, intolerable for a modern democracy or a constitutional republic to wait and wait for all sorts of different ballots, uh, both cast and counted under radically different and sometimes dubious conditions. The Democrats, with overwhelming media and money advantages, have mastered uh, these arts of massive and unprecedented early mail-in and absentee voting, old-fashioned um, count on um, Republicans, count on uh, riling up their votes to show up on Election Day. They're a little bit behind the uh, the curve, but it's uh, far easier to finesse and control the mail-in ballots than to get out the vote. Well, the country is divided in more ways than ever. America's interior just gets redder and the bicoastal corridors bluer. Exceptional Republican gubernatorial or senatorial candidates like Lee Zeldin, Tudor Dixon and Tiffany Smiley in blue states like New York, Michigan and Washington can't win upsets against even so-so Democratic incumbents, even during a supposedly bad election cycle, um, uh, laboring under a, a president with a 40 percent disapproval rating. Well, similarly, uh, or I should say approval rating, media spawned um, heartthrobs like Beto O'Rourke and Stacey Abrams can burn through hundreds of millions of dollars, but they still can't unseat women like uh, Republican incumbents in Texas and Georgia. Well, out-of-state immigration has only solidified these red-blue brand polarizations. Over the last decade, millions of conservatives have fled California, Illinois, New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania to Florida and Texas. The former states got bluer as New York governors like Andrew Cuomo and Kathy Hochul said good riddance to fleeing conservatives who were welcomed uh, as refugees to red free states, as they refer to themselves. Well, as voters self-select residents on ideological grounds and the uh, deleterious effects of blue states governance, the country is um, gravitating into two antithetical nations. Americans vote not so much for individual personalities as blocks of incompatible parties, causes and ideologies. Again, we are becoming more balkanized. Debates count for little anymore, especially after the disastrous performance of uh, winners, Pennsylvania Democratic Senate nominee John Fetterman and Hochul, of course, it was um, so late in the game. Many ballots had already been cast and were waiting to be counted. Democrats often limited or avoided them altogether. And the Republican charging and complaining that they did so meant little at all. Uh, Democrats still voted for Democrat candidates, regardless of Fetterman's clear cognitive inability to serve in the Senate and despite President Joe Biden's failures 
harm to the middle uh, middle class and unpopularity. Most Republicans are similarly party loyalists, but not quite to the same degree, at least if some feared supporting a hardcore Trump endorsed candidate might give them grief among family and friends. Winning or losing means revving up party bases, not running as much on a variety of issues. Biden's uh, attacks on conservatives as semi-fascist and un-American worked. Uh, When he recklessly warned that democracy's death was synonymous with Democrats losing, he further inflamed his base, but insulted half the country. The president also uh, goaded young people to vote by temporarily lowering, uh, lowering gas prices through draining the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, offering amnesty for marijuana offenses, canceling half a trillion dollars of student loan debt. He told young women that they would die without unlimited abortions, and most of that mud stuck. By contrast, Republicans wrongly assumed all voters, red and blue, cared most about spiking inflation, unaffordable food and fuel and open border and a disastrous foreign policy. Americans do worry, but also demand concrete solutions that they often didn't uh, hear from even insightful critics of the president's agenda. Also, in the last days of the election, President Biden and the media effectively smothered those essential issues by claiming the country was threatened by insurrectionists and pro-life fanatics. Stooping to claim the attacker of Paul Pelosi, a crazed, homeless, nudist, illegal alien, was the uh, verif- uh, the uh, veritable tip of the uh, supposed MAGA insurrectionary spear uh, proved to be effective. Harry Reid-style October surprise demagoguery. The nation is divided, and while it may have worked in an election, it's destroying the fabric of the nation in the process. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis likely emerges as the uh, dominant force in conservative politics. His landslide win in Florida carried all down-ticket statewide candidates throughout Florida, which has become an, as utterly red as California has turned utterly blue, and has been for quite some time. To the degree that Republican gubernatorial candidates not supported by Trump easily won their races and States like Georgia and Ohio, they helped Trump-supported senatorial candidates. To the degree Trump-supported gubernatorial candidates lost badly, such as in Pennsylvania, they hurt Trump-supported senatorial candidates. Well, Trump's pre-election unexpected attack on DeSantis may have turned off a few thousand um, independents and Republicans from voting for Trump-affiliated candidates, and his pre-midterm boast that he would likely run for president may have scared and energized some last-minute hardcore anti-Trumpsters and Democrats to go out to vote. All of that leaves the country seriously divided. Well, pollsters got it wrong again, but this time, once trustworthy conservative pollsters had little inkling that the simmering left-wing base was... Uh, Enthused by wild talk of abortion and insurrection, the real underpolled voters were not silent, um, wary Trump supporters, but this time around seething upscale women and college students. The final takeaway, Democratic opposition to a flawed and impaired Biden running again in 2024 has receded and will recede. Republican loyalty to the unpredictable Trump could fade and both those realities will empower DeSantis. But the bottom line, the country is divided. You wonder about the men and women who will go to Washington, to Olympia, to Salem, after all that's been said about them, about one another, how they work together, how they respect and regard one another, how they emerge as statesmen. I don't see it happening, but hope springs eternal. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the uh, Georgine Rice Show. Well, in a clean sweep, Democratic meddling in GOP primaries paid off in a big way on Election Day. Now, what they did was they, they supported some people, in fact, uh, jumped parties in order to vote for the Republican candidate they found less favorable. That person emerged to the general election. And then, of course, they... Uh, hoped that that less favorable candidate would uh, fail. And apparently the strategy worked. On the other hand, if it hadn't, well, it would have been a different story. Well, in the uh, driver's seat, experts say Pelosi could remain top House Democrat after the strong midterms. Now, she was um, thought to be retiring at the end of this term. She will no longer be speaker because it seems clear at this point that Republicans will be in the majority. But some have suggested the uh, events that took place around her husband, Paul Pelosi, have emboldened her to move forward. So we'll see what happens there. Well, lots of luck is President Biden's message to Republicans who want to investigate his son, Hunter Biden, if they take the House, saying that investigations are a waste of time. Suddenly, they've become a waste of time. Well, staying the course, Biden vows he will do nothing different in the next two years, despite a majority saying the U.S. is headed in the wrong direction. I got more votes. That's what former President Trump said, breaking his very brief and welcome silence on Governor DeSantis' re-election victory in the Florida governor's race. He is expected to announce that he plans to run for re-election as early as next week. Don't run, Joe. Well, a progressive group linked to Senator Bernie Sanders officially launched a campaign the day after the midterm elections to stop President Biden from seeking reelection. Well, it's clear that Joe Biden should not be the party's presidential nominee in 2024. The grassroots organization Roots Action said in a press release on Wednesday announcing their Don't Run Joe campaign. Well, the campaign's intent is to point to Biden's unfavorability and the perceived risk of running a presidential candidate that has held one of the lowest approval ratings in U.S. history against momentous uh, Republicans. Well, we don't know who that uh, Republican will ultimately be, but that's a quote. Trustee Trope, conservative Latinos, blast the suggestion that Spanish disinformation helped DeSantis win. You know, it's fascinating to me as an African-American. There's always an explanation when someone wanders off the plantation in which you are uh, inexorably linked by some. Uh, there's some explanation. Um, the Georgia gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams suggested that black men uh, were the subject of misinformation. It wasn't that they just didn't support her message. There was some nefarious underworld uh, campaign uh, that um, made black men unable to think clearly about the issues. And so this is just a continuation of that. It is so incredibly racist and insulting, and yet it passes for one in one side of the ledger. Frivolous spending, most student loan handout recipients are reporting spending money on travel and dining. Not sure how we uh, know that, but um, according to a survey, those who will benefit from the student loan forgiveness program are not planning on, you know, getting out from under the heavy load that they've been bearing, as the president suggested. They plan to spend the money on travel and dining. Former Vice President Mike Pence suggested that an ad from anti-Trump PAC convinced the former president that he could have overturned the results of the 2020 presidential election. In an excerpt published Wednesday in the Wall Street Journal from his forthcoming memoir, So Help Me God, former Vice President Pence recalled his last days with the president, former president, particularly in the weeks following Joe Biden's victory, which was being challenged at the time by the president's lawyers. 
13 days after the 2020 election, I had lunch with the president. I told him that if his legal challenge came up short, he could simply accept the results, move forward with the transition and start a political comeback, winning the Senate runoffs in Georgia, the 2021 Virginia governor's race and the House and Senate in 2022. Then he could run for president in 24 and win. He seemed unmoved, even weary. I don't know. 2024 is so far off. The former president is quoted as having said in Pence. Uh, book. Well, he wrote the former vice president about a call on December 5th, 2020, when the former president mentioned challenging the election results in Congress for the first time and said that by mid-December, the Internet had fueled a narrative that a sitting vice president had the authority to rebuff the election results. Vice President Pence pointed to one uh, particular ad released by the Lincoln Project, he said, influenced Trump's thinking. An irresponsible TV ad by a group calling itself the Lincoln Project suggested that when I presided over the January 6th joint session of Congress to count the electoral votes, it would prove that I knew it's over and that by doing my constitutional duty, I would be putting the final nail in the coffin of the president's reelection, Pence wrote. He continued, to my knowledge, it was the first time anyone implied I might be able to change the outcome. It was designed to annoy the president. It worked. During a December cabinet meeting, President Trump told me uh, the ad looked bad for you. I replied that it wasn't true. I had fully supported the legal challenges to the election and would continue to do so. The ad released on the 8th of December of 2020, titled Pence, taunted um, Trump with a direct message intending to form a wedge between the president and his running mate. And again, it worked. The end is coming, Donald. Even Mike Pence knows, a narrator told the president in that ad. He's backing away from your train wreck, from your desperate lies and clown lawyers. When Mike Pence is running away from you, you know it's over. Trying to save his reputation, protect his future. Oh, there's one thing, Donald. On January 6th, Mike Pence will put the nail in your political coffin when he presides over the Senate vote to prove Joe Biden won. It's over. And Mike Pence knows it. The narrator went on again. This is the Lincoln Project um, uh, commercial or ad. While the Lincoln Project was apparently effective in getting into Trump's head, a study found that the anti-Trump pack had little to no impact on voters. So the voters were not influenced by it, but the former president was. Well, the study conducted by the Democratic Super PAC Priorities USA, which looks into the effectiveness of the Lincoln Project's ads, found the various ads that went viral did not persuade voters in battleground states, but rather motivated, predisposed Biden voters. So sort of an interesting insight into the back and forth with the former vice president. Well, at the time, the vice president and the president. Well, on Saturday at a rally in western Pennsylvania, we saw the opening salvo of the battle yet ahead, Ron DeSanctimonious. Well, that's what former President Donald Trump called his fellow Republican, the wildly successful governor of the free state of Florida, Ron DeSantis, a man who would days later go on to win his reelection race in a stunning blowout of nearly 20 points. Well, it was a nasty swipe from Trump, utterly unnecessary and in full violation of Ronald Reagan's 11th commandment. Thou shalt not speak ill of any fellow Republican. Well, Trump couldn't help himself. And he, of course, doesn't do Reagan. The classy, affable um, Gipper isn't his style. Trump made his uh, bones in the brass knuckle world of Manhattan real estate, and he's never taken any prisoners in the political arena. So the de-sanctimonious comment was a shot across the bow, a warning from the 76-year-old Trump to the 44-year-old governor to wait his turn, further proof 
could be seen Tuesday night at Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort, where he refused to acknowledge DeSantis' uh, remarkable victory, even while acknowledging the big statewide win of fellow Floridian Marco Rubio, who won his Senate re-election race by 17 points. And as mentioned, it's being suggested that the former president is planning to announce, I think he said on the 16th, there's going to be a major announcement that he plans to run for re-election. You'll also recall that the current president indicated that he was going to try to prevent um, Donald Trump from ever occupying the Oval Office again. I'm not sure what constitutional authority he was referring to, but the battle lines have sadly been drawn. It makes you wonder on MSNBC, uh, hosts suggest John Fetterman could run for president. Hmm. Let's see how he does in January 1st. Jesse Waters says Republicans must get a grip on early voting or the Republic, the uh, Democrats rather prevail. And post midterms, the White House thinks its policies don't need changing. President Biden says, I can't guarantee that we're going to be able to get rid of inflation. What was the point of the Inflation Reduction Act, one might ask? Well, the president said during a press conference on Wednesday that he can't guarantee his administration will be able to get rid of the country's inflation issue. Biden was responding to a reporter's question, asking what he can promise concretely in these next two years that will help turn the pocketbook for the better in the midst of a starving uh, or rather staving off of the recession. RNC research weighed in saying Joe Biden, a few months after signing the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, I can't guarantee that we're going to be able to get rid of inflation. Again, begging the question. Republicans flipped House seats in Iowa and Arizona. All of the counties are reporting results in the race for Iowa's third congressional district, according to Secretary of State Paul Pate. Those results, which are unofficial, show Republican Zach Nunn um, leading a Democrat, Cindy um, <clears throat> uh, Axney, uh, was trailing. Uh, Republican Eli Crane defeated Democrat Tom O'Halloran in the race for Arizona's second congressional district. Crane is a former Navy SEAL. O'Halloran, who was first elected to Congress in 2016, faced an uphill battle after his district was redrawn to include more Republican-friendly areas. Georgia set a record for midterm voter turnout despite voter suppression claims. We'll tell you more about that in just a few moments when we come back from the break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. By the way, tomorrow on the program, we are going to feature a James Stewart Veterans Day special, so you can enjoy that in the first hour. And as per usual on a Friday, the Christian Outlook in the second hour. Well, Political reports that Representative Sean Patrick Maloney, the chair of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, conceded defeat on Wednesday, a humiliating loss for the Democrats and the chair of the party's campaign arm. He was ousted by GOP state lawmaker Mike Lawler, who attacked the five-term congressman over crime and inflation. Russia announces a retreat from the regional capital of Kherson. Don't get too encouraged. Um, I'm sure there's another side to the story. The Wall Street Journal reports that Russia announced a withdrawal of its troops from the southern city of Kherson and surrounding areas, the only regional capital that Moscow had seized since its invasion in February. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shogu, he ordered Russian forces to withdraw to the eastern bank of the uh, of the river at a meeting with the top uh, Russian commanders in Ukraine. Uh, the generals, a couple of them, in fact, said the troops would would leave in the coming days and take up positions on a new defensive line that had been prepared along the eastern bank of the river. Well, stocks dropped as election uncertainty persists. 
Uh, U.S. stocks sold off um, sharply on Wednesday, snapping a three-day winning streak as investors wrestled with the uncertainty around midterm election results and turmoil in the cryptocurrency markets. The S&P 500 shed 79.54 points, or 2.1%. The Dow, 2%. The technology-focused NASDAQ composite index um, dropped 2.5%. MarketWatch reports that Dow drops nearly 650 points as U.S. stocks log worst post-election day performance in a decade. The stock market was hoping for a red wave following the midterm election results. The Wall Street Journal saw a Wall Street rather saw a deflation in stock values as the anticipated red wave failed to arrive. The Dow Jones again dropped, as did Nasdaq. Conservatives won in New York. The Empire State gubernatorial race appeared to be reaching toss-up territory in the final week leading up to the election. But Democrat incumbent Governor uh, Kathy Hochul was able to defeat a serious challenge from Republican Representative Lee Zeldin. The thought that Zeldin even had a chance against Hochul is reliable in a reliably blue New York was remote. However, while Zeldin didn't win, Republicans did better across the state, effectively eroding Democrat dominance there. Russians are slowly retreating in Ukraine and the area I mentioned and others as well. President Biden says midterm votes, uh, the midterm vote was a good day for democracy and notes the red wave didn't happen. However, it appears the Republicans will be in the majority in both the House and the Senate although by maybe very slim margins. The GOP grew support among black, Hispanic, and youth voting blocs. Exit polls show nearly 70% of single women voted Democrat in the midterms. Inflation fell to a 7.7% annual increase in the month of October. And inventories of diesel in the United States are the lowest they have been heading into winter in 70 years. Before President Biden lambasted oil companies for excess profits last week and threatened to uh, to slap a windfall tax on them, several of his top energy advisors privately attempted to woo that same industry only to get rebuffed, according to seven people familiar with the matter who spoke on condition of anonymity. Officials from the White House and state and energy departments reached out to oil industry trade groups and companies in mid-October to get support for a plan to buy crude to refill the country's emergency reserves said the source. Uh, They told industry representatives their plan would help U.S. oil and gas companies by guaranteeing that the government would purchase oil in months, uh, months to come if crude prices fell to about $70 a barrel or below. It was the latest of several attempts by the administration to prompt uh, oil companies to boost output, this time by telling them they could invest in the uh, invest with confidence that the government would help ensure steady revenue. Officials, including the National Economic Council director and a special uh, presidential coordinator at the State Department, called some of the world's largest oil companies to make that appeal. President Biden says Elon Musk's Twitter deal is worth being looked at. I'm not sure what that means or what authority the president has. President Trump attacked Governor DeSantis, declaring, I got more votes than him. He needs to be a more gracious or he needs to be more gracious to me. President Trump said of Governor DeSantis, Mike Pence suggests that the Lincoln Project ad convinced the uh, former president he could overturn the 2020 election. And uh, in a bit of humor, millions of Americans struggle to fill the void in their lives left by the absence of political commercials. Mm. Well, on this day in history, 1775, the U.S. Marines are organized under the authority of the Continental Congress. 1871, journalist explorer Henry Stanley finds Scottish missionary David Livingston 
who had not been heard from in years near Lake Tanganyika in Central Africa. 1928, Hirohito is enthroned as Emperor of Japan. 1938, Kate Smith first sings Irving Berlin's God Bless America on her CBS radio program. 1942, Winston Churchill delivers a a speech in Lincoln in which he says, I have not become the king's first minister to preside over the liquidation of the British Empire, end quote. 1954, the U.S. Marine Corps Memorial depicting the raising of the American flag on Iwo Jima in 1945 is dedicated by President Dwight D. Eisenhower in Arlington, Virginia. Really a beautiful tribute if you ever have the opportunity to stand at the feet of that structure. 1969, Sesame Street makes its uh, debut on national education television, which would later be known as Public or PBS. Public Broadcasting Station. 1972, three armed men hijacked Southern Airways Flight 49, a DC-9, with 24 other passengers on board during a stopover in Birmingham, Alabama, and demand $10 million in ransom. The 30-hour ordeal, which would involve landing in nine U.S. cities and Toronto, finally would end with a second landing in Cuba, where the hijackers were taken into custody by Cuban authorities. 1975, the U.N. General Assembly approves a resolution equating Zionism with racism. The world body repealed that resolution in December of 91. 1982, the newly finished Vietnam Veterans Memorial is opened to its first visitors in Washington, D.C., three days before its dedication. Again, a very moving display. 1982, Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev dies at age 75. 1997, a judge in Cambridge, Massachusetts, reduces Louise Woodward's murder conviction to involuntary manslaughter and sentences the English au pair to a 279-day sentence she'd already served in the death of eight-month-old Matthew Epen. 2014, talks in Geneva on curbing Iran's nuclear program end with no deal after France objects that the proposed measures did not go far enough. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, facing allegations of sexual misconduct, comedian Louis C.K. says the harassment claims by five women detailed in a New York Times report are true, and he expressed remorse for using his influence irresponsibly. Hmm. Well, we are just about out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Maupin for engineering. A reminder tomorrow, the Veterans Day special. There's also a Veterans Day parade. That's in Northeast Portland. You can find out the details at kpdq.com. Um, and we'll also share this week's Christian Outlook. Thanks so much for listening and making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. We'll talk again on Monday. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.